Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. It's hard to overstate the influence of New York City composer Philip Glass. Along with Steve Reich's music, his minimalist compositions transformed the world of classical music, and eventually popular music in general. Glass's early epiphanies occurred in Paris during his time in the mid-60s studying under Nadia Boulanger, and in New York when he heard Steve Reich's piano phase. These events helped set Glass on a course toward the repetitive, dramatic, and conceptually rigorous style that's become his trademark. Throughout the 70s, Glass refined his work, resulting in career-defining compositions like Music in Twelve Parts and Einstein on the Beach. In the process, he became a popular sensation, a serious composer who wasn't willfully obscure or too difficult to understand. Glass's stunning soundtrack work for films like The Thin Blue Line and The Hours, and a symphony based on David Bowie's album Heroes, has only elevated his standing as one of America's most popular living composers. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2013 Red Bull Music Academy in New York, Glass waxed nostalgic on his time spent in Paris, musical tradition, and the art of performance. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Mr. Philip Glass, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Todd. Um, Obviously, we're in New York, but I wanted to begin in Paris, because I think uh, that's the city where music, although you had an enormous amount of training in the United States, that's where you... A lot of important things happened to me in Paris. So not only was it the music, but also that's where I first began really working in the theater, too. Uh, Oddly enough, there there was a lot of theater going. Some of it was in English, and some of it was in French. And I began working in movies then, too. So that would have been in the early 60s. It's quite a while ago. But uh, I went there to f- kind of finish my, complete my training that had begun in America and had been at Juilliard. But I didn't, it, it turned out to be more like a complete, how can you say, renovation, almost like taking the whole thing apart and putting it back together. Why was that? What was Because I had a very good teacher. What was her name? Her name was Nadie Boulanger. And... Um, she held us, and I say, she had a number, so she, she was uh, entirely just a teacher. She didn't uh, write any music herself. But she held uh, us to the highest standards that she could could find for us, and that would have been the cl- classics. That was a lot of uh, Bach and a lot of Mozart, and she really made you made you do that until uh, until you actually could dream in that language. You had already written a lot of music before then. But you almost stopped when you were in Paris well, I was because too you busy. were studying. She, she basically put, had me start all over again. For the first year I was with her, I did almost nothing but try to keep up with uh, what she wanted me to do. There were it was a pretty much of an eight hour. I got up in, in Paris. It's dark in the winter because it's in the north, so it was dark when I woke up and it was dark when I stopped. And um, it was a good eight or nine hours of work a day just to keep up with that. So it was very intense. I mean, it was a kind of a crazy thing to do. I already had the final degrees that I needed from Juilliard. I was 25 years old. I was supposedly done with that. And it turned out I was just beginning. And I was very lucky to find someone who could articulate a standard of uh, for me uh, that was attainable, but with great effort. What was it, I mean, when you... Why did you decide to kind of begin again? I mean, what was it about her? What did you well, heard you about know, her? I, I, because, I, frankly, I thought that the training I had was inadequate. I got a master's degree from Jordan, but I, I, I didn't feel that I had, uh, I understood, uh, there were things about music that, that I didn't understand, which I, by the way, I still don't understand. I don't mean to say that I even solved any of those problems. I still feel I'm not, I've, uh, there, there are things that I, uh, the more I do, the less I understand about how it really works. But, uh, at that, at that age, I hadn't really arrived at a personal language, which happened very soon after that. Because at the same time, I had the very good luck of being hired by Ravi Shankar to be his assistant. So I had these two crazy people, Nadia Boulanger and Ravi Shankar, who were both, they, they were both uh, perfectionists. And one in, a, in, a, in a, a tradition of music, which was unknown to me until that moment. 
so basically what I had to do, I was listening to the music, I was writing it down. And uh, getting, the difficulty was getting the rhythmic emphasis on the right notes. And um, I would write it down, they would play it back, and Alaraka, who was the drummer, who, the, the tabla player, he would say, no, 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 no. And uh, I would write it again and again, and they kept saying no. Then, then the French musicians began advising me, then that became even worse. I had all of them on top of me. And then I finally did a very, I, I, I did a, a remarkable intuitive thing, which is I took the music I had written down, and I erased all the bar lines. And suddenly I saw something which I hadn't seen before, which was that I saw the patterns that went, it went over bar lines, it, because he didn't use bar lines. I was using bar lines because that's what we had been taught to do. But uh, when I took the bar lines away, I saw the flow of the rhythm that I hadn't seen, and I looked at it. And almost immediately, I looked at, thought this was actually, a, a lot of it was just luck in a certain way. I had the right, I, I, I saw it, I analyzed it very quickly, and I saw also that there was a cycle of 16 notes that kept coming up. This is, later I found out that was called a tal. I learned a lot later on. You traveled to India. Oh, that, after that, I went, went to India. It was about, after that. I went about 20 times after that. And I spent a lot of time with him, and we wrote music together later on. And uh, he just died last year, and I spoke with him a few days before he died. I mean, I was in touch with him the rest of his life. How did it change your conception of writing your own music? Well, that was an interesting point. Because on the one hand, I, had, I was learning what, you, what we would call Central European, the basis of Central European art music, which is basically harmony, counterpoint, that kind of stuff. Uh, and I was learning it in a very thorough way from a woman uh, who was a great teacher and was unrelenting. She, she did not allow for mistakes. I couldn't bring music in with any wrong notes in it. She just, she would throw me out of the, uh, I took lessons in her, in her, in her home. She would just throw me out if there were any mistakes. And very quickly I, I learned how to write that kind of music without making mistakes. But it, so that was on the one hand. On the other hand, I was, by the second year, I was now working with Ravi Shankar in a, in a tradition of music that was very, very different. Uh, but obviously, uh, of a very sophisticated nature, which had a history of its own and its own kinds of rules. The, there is no uh, root movement or harmonic movement in, in the Indian music. There, there's a lot of ornamentation, and, there, and the rhythmic structure becomes the overall structure of the piece. That doesn't happen in our Western music, at least it didn't then. I began uh, looking at, uh, immediately almost, I began to experiment with the idea of taking the training I had from Boulanger and, and mixing in with the, with the work I've been doing with Ravi Shankar. Almost immediately I began doing that. And I began writing music for plays at that time. We were living in Paris. I was working with a little theater company. And, you know, there were a lot of things going on in Paris at that time. Besides Godard and Truffaut, who were making new movies then, uh, Jean Genet was still doing new plays. Beckett was doing plays. Uh, it was, Paris was a very interesting place in the 60s. All this, this stuff was going on, and I was writing music for a new plays by Beckett. With a little, there was a little small company, and he liked us for some reason, and we could. He gave us place to work on, and uh, I was the composer of the company, and he advised me where to put the music, and I worked very closely with him for a number of years. So that I began working, I began taking these ideas, and the first place they went to were into theatrical works. Not classical composition, which was to be played. Which I, I never think... wrote classical composition ever again. <laughs> That's not completely true. Eventually, I wrote a bunch of symphonies and this and that, but it was a long time later. It was a good 20 years later that I went back to working. Uh, I, I started my own ensemble very quickly after that, which was a keyboard, uh, electric keyboard ensemble with winds. We were using uh, the, uh, the high technology, which wasn't very high, we, we used uh, just amplified technology, just amplified music. There, were, there weren't any synthesizers yet at that point. Uh, there were just coming on, just coming around then. Uh, there was a Yamaha keyboard that was getting to be close to being a synthesizer at that time in the 19, in the early 1970s. So the organ that you were using when you came back to New York, the Farfisa? Well, they were these little, 
Italian professor organs that you could get. The reason I used them was because they were all over the place. Usually, and, and I, I needed uh, two or three of them because I, I had three keyboardists and, and three wind players and a singer. That's how we did it. Basically, I got the keyboards because they were... You know, my first band was mostly composers. And as a matter of fact, I still play with the ensemble, and everyone in the ensemble is a composer. And they don't write my music at all. They write their own music. But I've always done well playing with having composers play with me because uh, they, why do you think that is i think they like what i did i think they and they some of them came just to pick up whatever they could from me and and uh and also we were uh, this is an important point i had i was developing a performance practice that is a way of playing uh, which didn't really hadn't existed before and if you wanted to learn to play that music you could learn it with me uh it was very fast it was very highly synchronized music. It took us, in fact, with my ensemble, it took us uh, oh, five or six years before we even play it decently well. That's the thing I think that's kind of underrated about your music is obviously listening to it. It's very beautiful, flowing, but to play it for these very vast amounts of time, it must be extraordinarily difficult. And obviously you were oh, it, playing It's it like anything else. It's really difficult at first, and after a while it becomes a lot of fun. We're playing uh, very, very fast. Uh, a, a, a metronome marking, which would be easily 168, 176. And fast from a lot of people's 120 or even 108. If you, orchestra music of ordinary music. This is quite a bit faster than that. And we're playing often in unison or in parallel motion or in ways so that if someone is not, if we're not playing together, you can hear right away that someone is, is like watching dancers who are so supposed to be synchronizing their movements. Uh, these are synchronized musical movements, which if they go out of sync, sound terrible. So you have to play it. The, the standards of are very high, and they have to be met pretty accurately. At this point, uh, the group that I work with, we're very good at it. But, uh, you know, there's some other groups around, the, especially the younger groups, who are very good at it, too. And, in fact, they're as good as we are. And it took us years to do it. Now, this is an interesting thing, how a performance practice that someone begins 20 years later becomes very common. That happens a lot in music. It happens in jazz too. It happens in popular music too. Things that were, that seemed very hard at one time become, and you don't even know how that happens because it can happen three or four thousand miles away in another city. And you say, well, where did they hear that? And they didn't hear it. There's a kind of synchronicity that happens with when we get into the practice of music that uh, defies a geography. Early on, um, it was hard uh, to play, I imagine, and it was also, for a lot of people, hard to listen to. There was a lot of uh, people that were oh, not well, there, exactly there were, happy there about were complaints. The there were complaints. And people threw things at us, and we had fights. And I mean, We went through the whole thing. That hasn't happened in a little while, but uh, people would actually try to stop concerts, which meant that... It, it, Did it, you feel like you were doing something right at that point? Almost? Of course. <laughs> We knew we were doing something right. That, that, that you know, what we also had was a big immediate response to the music from other people who really liked it, and that wasn't just listeners, but it happened uh, people in the in the in the popular music world and the jazz world, they, and they were attracted to the music and they wanted to know what it was, and they would come to concerts and I got to know them and we would play music together sometimes, and that's how I began. I began working with people in popular music. There's people like Brian Eno, David Bowie. But yeah, them, and also uh, Aphex Twin, and uh, there's so many. Uh, we were talking, I did a record with Raymond Zarek years ago, a, a group called The Rabies, a, a, a very good Irish, uh, uh, Pierce Turner is a wonderful Irish uh, composer who's living in New York now. I've done several records with him. I guess I got involved with producing. We say producing. Was it, what I was really doing as I was working, I was making arrangements, and I was playing along with it. The producer was somebody else, was the guy behind the glass who was running the machinery. I was actually on the other side of the glass in the player's department. And uh, I was writing the music for them, but I was also playing the parts of it myself. 
So here's another uh, the big part of it that that I had come really come out of a world where we can say it was global music. Let's say we say Ravi Shankar, that was a very important part. I came from a very place that was very geographically far away, and culturally even further, in a certain way. At a certain point, and it was about this time in the 70s, I was I was aware, and this is we were really ahead of the curve on this because global music hadn't even really happened yet, but. I was playing it, and I was, I was studying with. I ended up studying tabla with Alaraka, not because I could be wanted to be a tabla player. I wanted to get a real feeling about how the rhythmic structure of the music worked, and so I got very far into that music and working with Ravi also very far into it. At a certain point, I had a kind of a, a, a light bulb went off in my head in a big way when I said, "Oh," I said to myself, "All music is ethnic music." What do you mean by that? We think of ethnic music as being uh, exotic, something that happens far away from where we lived. Uh, ethnic music would be from Africa or from India or from Australia. In fact, uh, popular music is a form of, of ethnic music. It just depends from which country you're listening to it from. Because I, tra- and I was traveling around relentlessly. I always traveled a lot. And I was in India a lot. And I was in Australia a lot. And I was starting to play in these places too. And then it looked to me like uh, someone said that all politics is local. Well, all music is local. And uh, it just depends on what your point of view is. And I began to approach popular music, the people I work with, in the same way that I would work with someone that I hadn't knew from uh, a didgeridoo player from Australia or a uh, tambora player from India. I, the, the differences were not that great for me. Or Fode Suso from Africa. What became interesting for me were that the um, the nuances of world music all actually seemed... That's what I meant. I said all music is ethnic music. That includes Brian Eno and David Bowie and... Two guys who are also extremely interested in world music. They were interested in the same things that I was. But not only that, but someone like uh, Richard James, that would be uh, Aphex Twin. He didn't have that kind of education, but he had those kinds of instincts. I mean, we may have done three or four tracks together. That's all we did. But he would come over to this. To, do, you, do you all know who he is? Yeah. yeah. He would come over. He was about 22 or 23, a very young guy. I was about twice. I was easily twice his age, if not older. And we would... Uh, we started doing a record together. And uh, what was interesting about him, he had no formal training, but then again, a lot of people don't have formal training who come into music from a cultural tradition which which doesn't have a notated tradition of culture, of music, where they have a tradition of performance music. And Richard was kind of like one of those guys. And I said, I asked him where he got it, what instruments he played. He said, well, he didn't really play anything. And he said, where his ideas came from? He said, well, I just would go to junk stores and buy whatever electronic junk there was, and I would see what made sounds, and I made music out of it. That was his explanation. I thought it was a pretty good explanation. Well, I listen to music or something like that. So what I did one time with him, what I did, he gave me one of his tracks. It was maybe 16, 8. In those days, it would be 16 tracks, maybe 24, but 16 would have been a very normal amount then. And basically, I uh, I listened to a track, and I would replace that track with another track, which was based on the track that he had done. And by the time I got done with it, I had replaced all the tracks, so that it sounded both like him and like me. It was a very interesting experiment. We did a couple of experiments like that. So with someone like Richard, he was willing to do anything. We didn't have any rules about what we were doing. We had a studio. At that point, I was down in Soho, in a place called the Big Apple Studio, it was, a, it was in the basement of a, at 120 Green Street. I still remember the address. What struck you about Richard's music? I mean, what did you hear in it that was interesting to you? What I liked about it was that I liked it and I didn't understand it. I'm always attracted by I'm attracted to things that I can't understand. It's a it's it's a it's a fundamental aspect of curiosity. When I don't understand something, I get curious about it. And I liked his music, and I didn't know what, what I liked about it. I, didn't, I wanted to hear more of it, and I wanted to fool around with it. You know who else was very much like that? Was uh, uh, David Byrne was like that. Uh, we did some things together, too. But I remember once <laughs> I was uh, writing some songs, and I asked David if he would write some lyrics for me. 
because I couldn't write lyrics, but David could write lyrics. He was very good at that. And so he came to my house, and he had a bunch, a couple of notebooks full of sentences, bunches here or there. And he just he said, well, here, what do you, what do you think of that? And I said, well, I said, let me take that sentence and that sentence. And I, I went through it, and I made a, made a, a song out of it. I said, what do you think of that? He said, that's what I thought you would do. <laughs> I have no idea what he thought. But uh, what I understood was that the uh, if I wanted to find a, a lyrics to write songs with, the best lyricists would be songwriters. So I didn't go to poets, which is uh, most people would f- find poetry that they like. I said, no, no, that isn't what I want. Because poetry isn't necessarily sung. It's spoken. It can be spoken out loud. But it won't... Uh, it won't conform to the to the passion and the rise and the fall of a musical line, the way a songwriter will do it. So I asked the songwriters I knew. The other person who was very good to work with was Leonard Cohen. Uh, Leonard uh, was a real poet who could who could more or less sing, and he was very. I say more or less sing. I mean, he is a fantastic singer, actually. But but in terms of he came into the world of, of pop music as as a writer. Yeah. And uh, uh, we did a book. We did a record together called "The Book of Longing," which is his poetry. Which he had actually half of those songs he had set to music on his own. And I asked him if I could, if he mind if I said made new settings. He said he didn't care at all. How do you write differently when you write for voice, like vocals on this? I imagine it was a little bit of a different process for you. I got involved with writing for voice uh, very early in the in the 70s. The first thing I did is that when I I wrote an uh, if I wrote an opera like Satyagraha for example and I didn't know that much about singing at the time. So after uh, we were began rehearsing, I asked everyone after asked the singers how the voice parts how they liked them and what they thought about them. The thing about singers, if you ask them a question like that, they will definitely tell you. You know, I, and they'd have no problem criticizing and saying, you have to understand that we're at the passaggio, where the, the, my voice has a place that it has to pass through and you can't hang out there. And if you keep me up too high, I'm not going to be able to sing these. You know, they took me through the whole routine of what good vocal writing is, which is that uh, if you write well for the voice, I, it took a long time. It took me 20 years to learn how to, so that a singer can sing for a whole evening without getting tired. So that, and if you, if you move the, if you exercise the voice in a certain way, it's just like anything. It's like if you do exercises, if you do push-ups all the time, in about 20 minutes you're dead. Or, but if you do different kinds of things, you can keep moving for a long time, as long as you know how, as you you exercise the body in a different way. The voice is exactly the same. If you stay up. At the top all the time, this thing, there will be nothing left for you. I also figured out that also that uh, when you're writing an opera, for example, the big arias come before the last act, not at the end, because they don't have the, they don't have the juice left. So the big parts, uh, the, the big finale should come before the end, and then the end is something different. But uh, I learned a lot of that by doing it and by working with singers. I didn't really know much about singing when I began. I sang in the choirs and so forth. You had to do that at music school. And I learned a lot about writing for chorus. Now, that's a different matter. It's a completely different thing. I, by the time I finished music school, I knew how choruses work, and I could do that. Uh, so Satyagraha was my first big opera after Einstein. has a lot of choral music, which is very well written, because I knew how to do that. I got away with uh, a lot of things in that, partly because uh, of the naturalness of the music that I was running at that time. Uh, conformed fairly easily to how the voice can work, but writing for the voice is a, 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 it's a real uh, metier, it's a real um, training that you have to do. So when you premiered this opera, you lost an enormous amount of money. Well. <laughs> Operas always lose money. The, uh, it, uh, operas always lose money. The thing that Wilson and I didn't know that when we, it was our first opera, so we didn't. We were selling out houses all the time. At the end of the of the run, we had lost a lot of money, but we didn't realize we were losing money. We thought we were doing pretty well, but uh, that's why opera companies are always raising money. It's a very expensive thing to work on. It's very labor intensive. You need a lot of people. You need a lot of time to prepare. It's uh, you can't make the money at the box office. 
when you were putting it together, did you feel like you were doing something like that uh, pretty amazing narration well, uh, said it was doing? I don't think we thought of it that way at all. Uh, I had been writing music at that point in 76. I had been in New York already for... Came in as, well, not that long, but I, I had gone to school in New York, but, but uh, I, I'd been working as a professional composer for maybe 10 or 12 years by then. So it wasn't the first thing I did. I've been writing theater music since I was 20. So uh, I was 39 then. So I've been writing theater music for 20 years. Uh, and Bob had also been working in theater for a long time. Uh, we got together and we understood that we, we could, we both had the ability to work in very long segments of time, very long time periods. Uh, people called it extended time. But it didn't seem extended to us. It just seemed like time. If you know what I mean, we didn't think it was particularly long. So we set out to write a piece that was four hours long, and we missed by an hour. It ended up being five hours long. So, But we, we just kind of got carried away a little bit. Uh, but uh, I don't think that we thought that we were inventing anything. I was writing, had been writing music for theater for a long time. Bob had been writing plays with music and without music for a long time. And uh, we had no particular plan. We had, we had a rehearsal period that lasted for about maybe 12 or 14 weeks. We were rehearsing on Spring Street. We had a company together. They came every day. We spent one, we spent a three hour period in the morning. Uh, I was teaching them music to sing and to, uh, there was another a three-hour period for the dance. The singers were also dancers. And the last period, uh, the last three-hour period was a staging rehearsal. So we did a morning, afternoon, and evening rehearsal. And we did that for maybe 12 or 14 weeks. And uh, at the end of it, uh, Bob, we had begun with a book of drawings that Bob had made, and I had written the music to the drawings. And then we staged everything to the music and the drawings. We weren't really thinking... Uh, I don't know. I have no idea what we thought. You know, we were just busy. We were. You were just busy. We were just busy. We were thinking what we were doing. Uh, uh, well, An opera, though, seems like a you know well, a statement and a major undertaking and a, a move that you hadn't well, Bob, done before. Well, Bob, Bob liked to call it opera because he was using the. He always said, "Well, opera and for the Italians means a work." He didn't really mean an opera, in the sense. However. We would get into these conversations with the groups like this, and after, and this is 76, and we'd do this piece, and people would come, we'd have a meeting the next day with whoever wanted to talk, so they usually a lot of people did. And they would say, but is it an opera? And Bob and I always said, of course it's an opera. But we, we never thought it was at all, but it was a very provocative question. And I came to the conclusion, the following, I said, look, to do Einstein on the Beach, you need a proscenium stage, you need an orchestra pit, for the people to play in. You need uh, fly space so that the drops can come up and down. You need wing space so things can go off the sides. You need a lighting bridge so that you can light it. If it walks like a duck, what? talks like a duck. Yeah, so exactly. I said, you can call it whatever you want to, but the only place we can do it is in an opera house. So I came up with a very easy definition of an opera, and opera is what you do in opera houses. And that is a pretty good definition, I think. So, meanwhile, I've done, when I go back and look at, I've done about maybe 28 or 30 of these theater pieces. How many of them are operas? Well, the ones that get done in opera houses are operas. And the others are different things. Maybe music theater pieces or experimental pieces or a piece called A Thousand Airplanes on the Roof, which was about eight. UFO abductions. <laughs> you know, just some actor talking about being taken away into a spaceship. That was a good piece. Uh, that we didn't call that an opera. We called it a. What do we call it? It was a. It, it was a. Where was it held? Then you can. We did it in, in an airport, actually. So is a. We did it. We did that flight. in airports. I don't know why, because at that at that time. Uh, I think Eno had done a piece called Music for Airports, and I was jealous of him having gotten into the airports before me. So we did this in an airport, too. But actually, we're old friends, and I think he, he knew that I was quite quietly making a joke of his... At the same time, my record company put out a new recording of... I loved, I liked that piece of his a lot. We re-recorded it and put it on my own label, so I wasn't mad at him at all. And he didn't seem to be mad at me. But uh, airports was a good place to do it. Um, after you, as I mentioned, you lost some money on this opera, or we'll just call it an opera for now. Um, you weren't doing music still full time as your well, job, I, main I, source I, of income at this point. And um, I want to just ask you, um, 
It took a long time before well, you. Well, I, I didn't it. think it was that long. I had a day job until I was forty-one. I thought that I thought that was not very long. I, I, that meant I had begun working, kind of in school in, in my teens. So, what oh, twenty, twenty-five years? I didn't think that I, I was. I was ready to hold out for a lifetime. I never expected to make a living at music. To be truthful, why? Well, when we started out, people were throwing things at me. I mean, you know, <laughs> they weren't throwing money. They were throwing eggs and tomatoes, and people were really angry. It didn't look like there was going to be a, an overnight success anytime soon, and there wasn't. I was forty-one when, at a certain point, I realized I could make more money out playing music than. Than doing moving furniture or what jobs or, did you? Hold? I did everything. I did everything that everyone does. I mean, uh, in this city, uh, if you, uh, I didn't wait on tables. I didn't like that. It, I didn't like that kind of work. But in this city, uh, it used to be uh, that people who drove cabs and worked in restaurants. They were mostly. You could always find dancers and singers and actors doing this kind of work. You were once doing a moving company with Steve Reich. No, 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 no. no. I worked with my cousin, uh, Gene Heisting, who was a sculptor. Uh, 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 Steve didn't do that, didn't like that kind of work. But uh, uh, we had a company called... Now, here's an interesting thing about You only have to work about eight days a month, the last four days and the first four days of the month. The rest of the time, you don't have to work. But you have to work very hard for those eight days. And, but the trick, oh, oh, this is for anyone who needs a, a day job like this, the trick is the name of the company. Because the people that call you have never met you. They just go by the name. In those days, you would put an ad in the village voice, and we found the perfect name. And here we are in Chelsea. We call it Chelsea Light Moving. We couldn't get a, we could, we, there was more work than we could do with that name. And so we were rent, we would go to the U-Haul and rent a van for three days, four days, and we move furniture. And uh, we really start in the morning and do as move as much as you can all day. And we always had we always had more jobs than we could do in a day. That's why, by the way, you're always waiting around for your moving man to come because they're doing what we did. You you just fill the truck as many times as you can. But that was just one of the, uh, we did all kinds of things. And when I was 41, I realized that I could make more money playing music. Than, and writing music than doing a day job, and that was the end of that. One of the things that may have... Um... I, I, I didn't go into teaching, and that was an important decision for me, because I, I was already a performer, and I wanted to be out playing, and I didn't see how I could have an active performance life and have a teaching job. I didn't see how that could work, and so I didn't do it. One of the things that was quite different from you and other composers around that time was that you didn't allow others to perform your music. It well, was... I didn't. Uh, at that time, I, I've become less strict about that. The idea was that somebody wanted to hear the music, they had to hire me to play it. Basically, I wanted to be the only one that owned the music, but that was the way I could maximize it. That's actually how I began, began to make a living, because someone wanted to hear my music played live, they had to hire me to play it. So I got paid, not for writing music, but for, for playing it. Why did you make that decision? I mean, did you I have it in your mind? Because I wanted to was... get off moving furniture. <laughs> I, was, I was looking forward to the time when I wouldn't have to move furniture. And it eventually came. I was in my 40s when it came, but it did come. Why was it the other way? Why were classical composers open to allowing people to play their music all the time? I didn't play their music. I played my music. I'm saying, why did other composers do it the other way? What was the Because I think, they, I think they were just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I explained to them what they should be doing. For example, I was my, also started my own publishing company, which none of them did. They all sold their music to other people. I never did that. The younger ones began to do what I did, and now it's more common for young people. To have, it's always been true in popular music for the composers to keep the publishing. The publishing is where the money is. That means that's how you get paid. Well, no, no, it's no longer so true. But the radio play in uh, what we call ancillary, you know, the synchronization rights when people put it with movies or even if they do a fashion show and you use, uh, they have runway music and they use your music, they have to pay for it. But if you own the music, then you get the money. If you don't own the music, somebody else gets the money. You just mentioned movies, writing for film. What are the challenges, or what were the challenges for you in the first ones that you were doing? Well, the writing film music and writing opera music or theater music isn't that different. 
basically you're combining image, you're matching image to music, uh, movement to music, text to music. It's, uh, the elements of image, music, text, and music are the four elements. It's the earth, air, fire, water. That's all there really is in the theater. Film is closest to opera of all of them because uh, all four elements are there. The text is there. The image is there, the movement is there, and the music is there. So you get everything. You don't get everything with plays. You don't get everything with dance. You get everything with, with operas, and you get everything with film. The biggest challenge in working with film is uh, uh, it, it's not really a, it's a collaborative art form, but it doesn't work collaboratively. Whereas uh, I've, I've just done an opera in Austria with a uh, choreographer, a designer, a writer, and music elements. Uh, and we were able to work very closely together without telling each other what to do. We didn't have, we had a director who actually was very good. He helped make everything work together. Uh, film, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. It usually works from the top down. It's usually the studio, then the producer, then the director, then all the way, at the, then the actor, then the actor at the bottom is, the very bottom is the writer, actually. The composer is a little bit ahead above the writer, but not much. Uh, and and this is the curious thing is because well, what what is the most essential thing you would think about a film might be, it might be the story, it might be the music, but it's not treated that way. So that the difficulty thing uh, with writing film music is that first of all, there are very talented people working in the film business, so I like it. I like working in film, but. Uh, the difficulty is finding producers who, basically, they're looking at the marketplace as the ultimate test of of, the, of what they're looking for, and that isn't usually the way we work. Cohen's Katsi couldn't have been. They were looking at the marketplace. Well, Godfrey Reicher wasn't making Hollywood movies either. Yeah. Uh, we were we were in L.A. when we did it, but Godfrey uh, actually is from Louisiana. He, he uh, keeps his works out of uh, Santa Fe. And his films, Kainas Kasi, Paul Kasi, Nakoi Kasi, and all a new movie, uh, The Visitors, which is going to open in Toronto, has only made a movie every, once every 10 years. It takes them 10 years to get the money to make a movie. They're not really documentaries. That they don't really have any... Uh, there are images and music, and uh, there's no text. Uh, there are no actors, except the millions of people that you see in them. So it's... Uh, I don't know if everybody here knows them or not, but we will be, these movies of Godfrey, we play live with the film, and we do eight or ten concerts a year of just these kinds of movies. Uh, they're very good with live music, and, uh, but they're not, they, they're not uh, what we call industry films at all. The industry films, the trouble is that they can be very interesting to work with, and some can be very good. I thought that The Hours was really good, I thought Mishima was really good, I've, I've done some, the, uh, I, I've done some industry films which I thought were I was very uh, uh, the movie I did with Scorsese uh, Kundun about the Dalai Lama I, these are really these are really classic films for me uh, and I although I still had uh, administrative problems with working I, I never won an argument with Scorsese ever about anything I can imagine with certain directors they have such a distinct aesthetic that you're never going to win an argument. Well, the, uh, the, the, the best ones actually were the ones that left me alone the most. Uh, but uh, uh, Woody Allen left me alone almost completely to do a score for him. But then when they decided something, then you couldn't argue with them. I mean, I was doing, working with Woody Allen on a movie. He only worked on one movie. And he said, oh, just put the music in wherever you want. He said, because I said, where do we put the music? He said, oh, you, you put it in. And then we came to one place and when he was listening to us and he said, no, there's no music there. And I said, Woody, I'll just write a different piece. I thought he didn't like the piece. He said, oh, no, 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 it's not that. I don't want any music there. And I said, no, let me try something else. He said, no, I don't want any movie. You know, he said, the, the, in the end, the director always wins. In the opera house, the composer always wins, by the way. In the dance house, the choreographer wins. In the theater, the director wins. I mean, I know about this. The the uh, the dynamic, uh, uh, the way that the lines of authority are different in each of these fields. And uh, we, uh, I write music in all of those, and I have a different relationship to each of those mediums because of that. On the other hand, I would say that uh, I like doing, all, I like writing film music as much as I like anything. Uh, the the uh, 
Um, is there a medium you prefer I the like most? The, the, what I like really is opera because it's a live performance medium, and that makes it preferable to me. It involves dance. It involves uh, uh, orchestras. It involves singing. It involves choruses. You also get the last word, as you said earlier. You get, yeah, you get you specifically get I get the last what? word in that instance. I, well, I do. It's the, the opera house is the composer's house. Yeah. I uh, actually, when someone commissions an opera. The, the the head of the opera company and I together decide who the director will be. He can't decide by himself. Now, once we have the director, he will decide on the designer, but he has to show us who the designer is. So we get to... After that, the designer just picks the lighting guy, and I don't get any... I have no say in that. It go, after that, then the costume designer is picked by, the, by sometimes the choreographer. But uh, the first line of decisions and, and operas are made by the composer. Over the years, you've worked with so many different people. You're very collaboration-happy. Are there any ones that slipped away that didn't come to pass that you regret? Well, that we didn't get to do. There are people who died before we got to do more work. I mean, uh, I, I wanted to do uh, another... I did two operas with Doris Lessing. She had, She's just simply not working right now. And uh, there's a third opera I want to do. I don't know if I'll be able to do it now. Now I'm going to have to deal with her family, which is different. Ornette Coleman and I always wanted to do a piece together. We've never done it. We've talked about it for 30 years. So we've never done it. It's funny because he was did the original soundtrack for that Ravi Shankar That's film. right, he did. And it was rejected. And they not by in, me. Not by you, but it was rejected. Uh, the and the, they the filmmaker, uh, 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 Conrad Rooks, was the filmmaker. He... Uh, he he wanted to replace us. He, I was living in Paris, and he said, I, I had met him before, and he he said like he he had this film and and Ornette Coleman who wrote the music. He said I don't want to use the score, and I he let me hear the score. And I said you're crazy. This is a fantastic score. He said no no I don't want to use it. I'm gonna get Ravi Shankar to write it. And it was after that that I got hired to work with Ravi G. But uh, uh, I think that uh, I think that Ornette finally he put that record out as a record. I, I think you can find that kind of his. Uh, it had a different name. Uh, he it's called it Chapaqua. I think he gave it a different name, but it was the score. It's on the internet somewhere. Somewhere, sure. but it, and it was a beautiful score. But uh, and he and I got to know each other around that time, and we were talking about doing a piece together. Both of your music is so wildly different. I know. What what, I, what kind of collaboration do you think I that said, would be? And I said. Or not, our music is so wildly different. What are we going to do? And he said, oh, he said, Philip, there's only one thing to do. You start playing and I'll start playing and that's what we're going to do. <laughs> he had it all figured out, but I, had, I didn't have any idea how we were going to do that. But, but you uh, don't do improvisation. Not really. But uh, what I would have done, uh, uh, we, I don't know if we're still thinking about it, but we've talked about it from time to time. He has had various groups together. And uh, what I would do is I would start, what, as I did with, when I worked with uh, Ravi Shankar, I would start, he either he would start or I would start. It didn't matter who started. And that would do, with Fode, it was the same thing. He was a core player from Africa. If he started, then I would add to it. Or if I started, he would add to it. It almost didn't matter who started. Uh, because what you ended up with was a, a kind of a, a musical dialogue that he did something, then I did something. And... Uh, they can become very, very close. It depends on what, how close you were to the person's work. The reason it interested me about Ornette was I had, I liked his music a lot, but I had no idea what it would be like to work with him. So since I had no idea what to do, I thought there was a chance we could do something interesting. I think that's sort of been the defining, I don't know what that would be like. I wouldn't that's right. do it. Basically, I like what I don't know. And I don't know what I like. Uh, it's just the opposite of I know what I like. I, I don't know what I like. It's a better, it's, it's a more interesting way of going. I've had a lot of collaborations that are unexpected because I, I waded into way into deep water before I knew, and I just knew that the water would be deep. I didn't know what we would do when we got there. Uh, working with, uh, Richard James, uh, Apex Turn, we had no idea what to do. And I think the things we did together were very, were, were very solid in a way. When you work that way, uh, there's a, a, a kind of openness in the in the collaborative process, and and what's most important is uh, uh, a lack of. Uh, the, we didn't approach it in a judgmental way. You don't say I don't like that, or 
with Wilson and I, we never talked about each other's work. We just did pieces together. Almost never did he say anything about the music, and I almost never said anything about what he did. I find it interesting, though, that you know, your way of working seems to be quite different from a lot of your collaborators. I wonder if there wasn't this natural sort of like, oh, well, I, there is kind of a hierarchy. He has all of this uh, training and technique. Yeah, that's how I always think about it. I think, oh, he has all this training and technique and I have so little. That's how I always look at it. But they look at it the same way, only from this. They, they make me be the one that knows what he's doing and they think they don't. So these are, these are personal uh, disfigurations of reality, we can say. Uh, but uh, I think the main thing about, I think we talk a lot about collaboration. Now I think today, the work today is very collaborative, I see, that's being done all around me. Uh, a lot of it came out of, the, we came out of groups like the Living Theater who were the generation for us who were just making up pieces as they went along. They didn't know what even, didn't even know what the subject was sometimes. Uh, it would come up later. Uh, they did a wonderful piece called Frankenstein. I don't think they even knew what it was until they finished it. One of the things, the most important element of collaboration is a true respect for the other person. And, and you, you just, uh, and, and, uh, like if it's a, a dancer or, or a writer. I just did this piece with a writer who I didn't know him at all. It was in German and I said, language. I, I had some high school German, but I know enough of it. I could work with him. His name was, uh, Peter Henke. It was, we just did a, a piece which he called, uh, in German, it was called Evidence of Those That Have Disappeared. So I was writing this piece and I said, oh, so I, that was it in German. It was despairing and it goes on in German. And I took my, I took my music paper and on the top of it. I wrote The Lost. <laughs> and he said, oh. And I said to the people I was working, I said, look, don't tell Peter I've changed the title. Of course, they called him up immediately and told him. And he said he liked the title. And what I did was, and I, I took the text, which was abstract. What I liked about it was very abstract and very intimate at the same time. It was very, uh, it could be erotic and it could be distant at the same time. It could be scary and kind of soothing at the same time. He was able to bring polarities into the work that was completely interesting. So I began to write music for these, these opposites. And later he was giving a press conference and I didn't, I didn't meet him until the first night, until the press rehearsal. We never talked about it. And he gave a press conference and he said that, uh, he thought that my music had respected the words, and actually it was true. It's not that I was faithful to the words, I was bound to them in a way. I, I had to make them work somehow. And what I did was, uh, I just made them work in different ways. Obviously you've had a very, very long career. What, what do you still have yet to do? I have to finish a string quartet right now, sitting on my <laughs> piano, which I'm spending an hour with you. You do this, it's fine. Uh, I have an opera to do right after that, uh, which is The Trial by Kafka, which is a very interesting piece. That'll be in for an opera company in Wales. And uh, do you know The Trial? Do you have you ever read The Trial by Kafka? The Trial, you know what The Trial is? And he didn't want this piece published. He said, because he, he, and people thought he didn't want it, it published because it wasn't finished, but that's not, I don't believe that's true. I think he didn't want it published because it was too true. It seemed to be, I'm sure the trial was him, and the trial was his whole life. I'm sure of it. And what I'm going to try to do is do it in such a way so that the audience become not the spectators of the opera, but the spectators of the trial. If I can make that work, that would be fantastic. And I think that's why he freaked out before he died, and he told his friend, Max Brode to burn this piece, and he did, and Brode didn't do it. He published it. He said, "Oh, he didn't really mean it. He really he knew that I would publish it. So when he said burn it, he just gave me permission. That's what he said. <laughs> but I think he didn't want it published because it revealed too much about himself. It's a very interesting piece. So there's that piece to do. Then um, there's a new ball. I mean, I, could, I have no, no. I, the point <laughs> I being that you still are working very, very hard all the time, well, I, and it doesn't I, I, stop. I, I, and I, that's I, kind of amazing. There's no sign of 
of, of mental decay yet? Well, I don't know. I, I was not going there. <laughs> I thought I was having mental decay in my 20s, so if I could have it in my 70s, it's going to be probably more extravagant. Uh, uh, you know, we worry about things like that, but, but not, I don't worry about it that much. Uh, but you'll never retire. No, I'm not planning on an early retirement. I've missed, I've missed all the chances for retirement. I might as well keep going. But uh, what, what's interesting now is uh, I think that uh, the work that's being done today is among the most interesting work I've seen in, in decades. In what specifically are you I'm talking about, about? Uh, the work being made by people in their 20s and 30s, which is, uh, which is uh, bringing technology into an art- artistic... Uh, collaborative form, uh, which is inventive and unexpected and completely interesting. I get invited to do concerts for some, and I, I get to hear a lot of this stuff. It's, re- it's a very interesting time because it's not commercial music, and yet the, no one's afraid of commercial music. A lot of people write commercial music because they make a living on it. It's not intimidating to do it. They just do it because it's just a way to, to make some money. But uh, it doesn't affect uh, uh, the art music. There are a lot of people doing both things. And, and even uh, people coming out of the world of very successful popular music are doing very experimental work. So those kinds of dichotomies are totally disappearing. And uh, it's coming, uh, I'm very interested in this. You know, the, in one way, when we look at the, uh, the technology of of music and the technology that's happening in the art world and the world of performance, it looks like uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of careerism involved and a lot of success-oriented stuff. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that have nothing to do with that. And there are people who are looking at things in a very fresh way. I think that this is a... There's another thing, too. We're in a, the more repressive politically the society is going through, the more interesting the art is. I've, I've lived long enough to see this happen. The 50s was a terrible time. That was the McCarthy years. It was also the most creative time. That was the years of the beatniks and, and the early rock and roll stuff and even Stockhausen, you can say, and that crazy stuff that was happening in Europe. The 50s was uh, socially a repressive time and artistically the most inventive time. And I think we're in a, almost an identical period right now. I mean, None of you are old enough to know that, but I am. And let me tell you, it was just as bad in the 50s as it seems right now. And what what I'm seeing is uh, uh, an energy coming into the art world, which I haven't seen in 30, 40 years. It's actually terrific. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mr. Philip Glass. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.